Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Peter chapter 2 once again. And uh, we're going to read the entire passage. You notice this is part two of the lesson we began last time with the title Rotten Apples. And I, I am going to just pause. I didn't really script this, but I, I want to just remind you, um, even though I confess to having a little fun with that title, I do want you to know there's a reason that I chose it. And I may say something about this to try to tie all of this together right at the very end if there is time. But remember, when we started off the study of 2 Peter, you have a, a description there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, of what the fruitful Christian, the growing Christian, the Christian who is grounded in his faith looks like. Look at that again. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So remember, we talked about the fully outfitted faith. And you go along and you add to your faith virtue, moral excellence, and knowledge, and self-control, and to self-control steadfastness, with steadfastness godliness, then brotherly affection, and with brotherly affection love. So when you come to chapter 2 and you have this eloquent description of these false teachers who have departed from the truth, then it's not too far-fetched of a title to talk about rotten apples because they do not have the fruit in their lives that validates that there is any genuine Christian profession. In fact, quite the opposite, and that's what we're seeing. So let's read God's Word. I want to start this week at verse number 9, which is actually the final verse in the section before where we were last week. But this section, beginning verse 10, is our section for last week and this week. But I want you to see again how the connection occurs. So watch the context when it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And that corresponds to what we saw in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So, Peter keeps emphasizing, judgment is coming. Do not kid yourself. And this is the big description of it in verses 10 through 22. Let's begin reading then verse 10. And especially, or particularly, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming out about matters of which they are ignorant, in other words, it's above their pay grade, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel, that is, live, live luxuriously in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable or literally unceasing for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained or conditioned in greed, accursed children. They're under God's curse. This is what he's talking about. Now, today's material. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for a beautiful day outside. Always the beauty of the sunshine coming up lifts our spirits. And we thank you too, Father, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We realize that later today, should we have interest, there is a an astronomical phenomenon with a total lunar eclipse later tonight. And all of these things just show the magnificence of your universe, your great and mighty power, which men seem to go out of their way to deny. Thank you, you have conquered our rebel hearts and caused them to yield to the truth of God. And in today we realize as we think about people who callously turn their backs on your truth and risk eternal condemnation and separation from God, that only by your grace are we here today, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, a part of the flock of God, children of God rather than an accursed brood, as we read about here in this chapter. Lord, we're humbled. We don't understand why, among the many millions and billions even, that you would select us, but we are thankful. And pray that as we come to our church on the Lord's Day, that uh, as hundreds, thousands around the world are doing, we would have open hearts. We read that the Father seeketh such to worship him. We acknowledge that you are a spirit, that we are to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to begin that right now, even in our Sunday school time, to open our hearts to your truth. Would you just help me, Lord, to be a useful instrument in your hands today, to speak forth those things that will be helpful, clear, devotional, and practical, all at the same time, giving us an understanding to the best of my ability and with the the blessing and help and ministry of the Spirit to increase our understanding of the Word of God here in 2 Peter. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, remember what I called this passage last time, the centerpiece of the centerpiece, because, and I'm speaking of verses 10 through 22, because Chapter 2 is, is in many respects, I think, the centerpiece of 2 Peter. If you think about an outline that reflects truth, uh, and that's not a bad way for us to approach this, the truth is given, so to speak, in chapter 1. Then you have the truth attacked in chapter number 2. That's right where we are in the thick of the fight right now. And then we'll see the truth defended in chapter number 3. But if we look at it that way, um, then it really helps us to understand the judgment of God coming on these people who deny the truth, and to understand really just just how important truth is. Truth matters, folks. 
and I have reiterated this over and over again in the course of these studies, we cannot afford to put ourselves in a position where we diminish the value of truth. I'm not talking about marginal things that, that, that people differ over. You're welcome to study the Bible and to come to your own conclusions over those things, but orthodox Christian truth, we are not at liberty to barter that away in the name of getting along with people or anything for that particular matter. It's sacred truth. It matters if you depart from it. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is read what happens to people who do, because we have a very thorough explanation of it right here in this chapter. So judgment is coming on these people. And Peter wants his readers to understand that. And so the way I'm approaching this is to demonstrate it by showing you four stunning reversals. Um, you know, what is really interesting, I was thinking about this, I don't know if I said it last week or not, but these stunning reversals that we're talking about, what's fascinating about this is you don't wait for eternity for this to happen. God's law of sowing and reaping is in effect right now. And it's actually operative in my life and in yours, right? Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 are true for the believer, are also true for the unbeliever. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That's going on, but it's also true in the lives of unbelievers. They don't sow to the Spirit, but you can, the law of sowing and reaping still obtains. Well, you may have heard this saying. It's, it's, it's typically attributed to Charles Stanley, I don't know if other people say it, probably other people do and don't give any credit for the quotation, but I really like this because it really has a way of really putting right there in a very succinct way what this boils down to. What does it really mean, God's law of sowing and reaping? You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you reap later than you sow. So it's operative even in this life. So here are the first two that we looked at last time. What's, what's a stunning reversal? Well, the whole idea that what you do actually comes around like a boomerang. It's the law of sowing and reaping. And you become the victim of the things that you purvey yourself that are wrong. So the destroyers are destroyed. Look at verse 12 where we see this. At the very end of the verse, it says, will also be destroyed in their destruction. False teaching is destructive. He says this in verse number one, they bring in destructive heresies. They will bring upon themselves swift destruction. And now he is talking about that and elaborating on that a little bit more. People who handle God's truth in a destructive manner are going to be destroyed themselves. And that's what this is saying. That's the first of them. The second of them, the wrongdoers are wronged. Look at verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 has it, as the ESV translates it here, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Or as doers of unrighteousness, they become unrighteous. As I mentioned last time, it's sort of a play on the word unrighteous, and the ESV uses the translation wrong or wrongdoer, which is fine, no problem at all. Brings the sense of this reversal out. Now, this week, we're coming to the last of these, and we have more verses to cover, so I'm going to try to keep this moving. The first of them... Beginning verse number 15, the misleaders are misled. Don't you love it? I want you to think for a moment about an Old Testament story. Think about the patriarch Jacob. If you don't believe the law of sowing and reaping is operative in the lives of believers, just think about the illustration I'm going to give you right now. So do you remember what Jacob means? 
you can think of a fancy word that starts with an S. Give me that one first. Sa, 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 supplanter, okay, or it can mean deceiver, or he was just a cheat, <laughs> you know. I mean, that was his old life and his nature. So he deceived his father about Isaac, about who he was, right? You remember this? And he, together in this plot with his mother, he put the hair on his back of his neck and on his hands and told that lie that he was Esau when he was not, when he was not, he was Jacob. That, you know, that's commonly called deception. Right? Wonder how he thought on the morning after his wedding night when it was Leah and not Rachel. Do you think that ever kind of crossed his mind. I don't know that it took him till morning to figure that out. It's just the way the Bible phrases it. But hmm, the deceiver was deceived. What went around came around. So that law of sowing and reaping, we need to have a healthy fear of that even in our own lives. But boy, when you're talking about these people who are apostates, this is what he is saying to us now in this yeah, no, it would really help if we move forward. There we go. In, in this first point, so I want you to notice something that uh, in the broader context, we're going to kind of use the idea of zooming out for a moment. If we look at verse 15, Peter begins by talking about the right way. But he likes this phrase. He likes to talk about the way. And if you go back to verse 15, you'll notice that he's done that. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth. So he talks there about the way of truth. All right, you come to verse 15, and he talks about the right way. You go over to verse 21, or yes, verse 21, and he talks about the way of righteousness. For it would better been better for them never to have known the right way, the way of righteousness, than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment. So Peter is all about making a claim. Some people would say, that's awfully narrow. Why? Because Peter's saying what we teach is the right way. Now you could say that and, and it would be arrogant. But folks, here's the thing. We don't need to be arrogant. We need to be humble in our proclamation of the truth, but we also need to be unyielding when we realize that you cannot get away from the fact. This is just a truth by nature. You cannot get away from the fact that truth is narrow. Something is either true or it's not true. Jesus Christ is either the Son of God or he's not. People who try to compromise and come along and say, well, I believe he was a good teacher, or I believe he was a good man, or I believe he was an example. No, that's foolishness. You don't know anything about what he claimed. You don't know anything about what the Bible says. He is not those things. If he is not what he said, he is. Truth is narrow. When I was a little kid, my parents told me electricity is dangerous. Don't play with it. Do you think there's any room for compromise with that? I found out there wasn't when I picked up a set of keys that were laying around and jammed one in an electrical socket. I was somewhere around two years old. I remember that. I believe it or not, I remember that. It was shocking. 
It was a shocking truth. What they told me was narrow. Didn't leave room for me to kind of wiggle around and say, well, I could just insert it a little bit. And I got shocked. And this is what Peter is saying. And I, I think another thing I'd like to impress you with without laboring this is, you know, you, as the more you go through Peter, the more impressed you are with his knowledge. He's just absolutely, for being, for being you know, what we think about the self-righteous Jews, in the early chapter of Acts, we're talking about being an unlearned and ignorant man, which is, you know, that's a kind of a, in some ways, that translation leads us astray just a little bit because it's just basically the idea of private and uneducated. But until the Lord got through with him, until he went to the three years of the Lord school and then the Holy Spirit worked, you come away realizing it's just how saturated he really is in the Old Testament scriptures and with the teaching of the Lord himself. You're going to see some more of that in today's lesson, the teaching of the Lord himself. I think this reflects that. Where, where do you get this notion that you're talking about Christianity as the way? Well, it comes right from the beginning because Christianity was known as the way. It was the early name for Christianity. Paul says this, in Acts 22 and verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Where do you think that, no, that, 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 that name for Christianity came from? The fact that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. Folks, I'm telling you, that's narrow. But the, the Bible doesn't brook any deviation from it. He either is that or he isn't. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man that cometh unto the Father but by me. And it was the fact that the early Christians were so clear. I'm not saying they were arrogant, far from it. But I'm saying they were so clear in their pronouncement of that truth, their preaching of that truth, that Christianity, they began to call Christianity the way. Oh, it's those way people. But Paul said to Felix in Acts 24, verse 14, but this I confess unto you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, so forth and so on. Now, here, folks, is what I think the point is by bringing all of this up. I think that Peter is trying to make it clear once again, this is all against the backdrop of false teachers. And so it's a way for Peter to continue to reiterate that the apostolic teaching the truth of the scripture, the Old Testament prophets, which he's already touched on in chapter 1, which he's going to touch on again in chapter 3. All of it has its roots in the scripture, and it's all the truth of God. Now, what happens if you leave the right way? You're on the wrong way. Right? I mean, it's not like Google Maps, where if you leave the right way, recalculating, you know, and there's, there's several other ways to get you there. Um, usually. But if there's only one road to a certain place and you deviate from that, you're going to be on the wrong way. And so with these particular false teachers, this whole point of the misleaders being misled, they've forsaken the right way. There's not much else left to you except to go astray yourself. And, you know, for those, again, who notice these types of things, this is another example of where you have the passive voice used. And I think it underscores this whole idea of what we've been talking about with the boomerang effect, these powerful reversals, these stunning reversals. You mislead someone, you end up being misled. And that's what's going on here. 
having been led astray. Um, I, I mentioned to you there that, that this word is also, this is the word from which we get our English word planet. Planao in Greek is where you get the word planet. And planets, the, the idea behind it, at least in the concept of the name, is wanderer, the wanderers of outer space. We know a little bit more about science and know that they may appear to wander, but they're actually on set courses. But the wanderers have been caused to wander. It all comes back to them. And they've completely subscribed. These people are, are total, total adherents. They, they've been completely taken in by the way of Balaam. Now, I want to point something out to you. If we were to look over in Jude's account of this, I believe it's verse 11. Let me just do this. Um, be hearing grab this verse for us. Peter talks about the way of Balaam, but Jude is kind of interesting when he refers to it this way. Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's, and that word is error. And what's really interesting is, um, again, I, I point this out because I don't know that this would be something that we would just see uh, you might notice it from the English if you look back and just were looking for commonality of words, but it says, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Well, do you remember when we were back in verse 2, and many will follow. So there's, there's another use of the word follow. Is it the same word in the original? Yes, it is. And if you remember, I was telling you that word's an intensive, that word exakalutheo, is an intensive that basically means that they not only follow, they fully follow. In other words, they completely buy in, or to bring out the point that's going on here with this stunning reversal, they are completely snookered. This is kind of scary, folks, especially when you realize, think about the story of Balaam from the Old Testament. I mean, he somehow sold himself to believe that he was okay. And it ends up with a picture that's almost laughable. If it weren't so sad, it would be laughable. When God, he, he becomes so, he becomes so blinded in his own sin. Balaam does. And he's doing it. We know he's doing it for dishonest gain. We know that his, his heart was filled with greed. We know that that was the whole motivation behind it. And because he wanted that money, he wanted what that fame, that power, that Balak offered to him. He sold himself to believe, well, I'll just go a little bit. And he's riding on a donkey. And do you remember the story? What happens the first time? The donkey just sees the angel up ahead. As I say, if it weren't so sad, it would be humorous that the donkey can see more than he can. But that's really scary when you get to the place where you become so blind you can't see obvious truth which is the whole point of what's happening here. The donkey just goes off the road, and he gets mad, and he whacks the thing. The donkey doesn't say anything. They usually don't. And he goes a little further, and the angel's standing there again, and this time, I guess the donkey thinks, well, this guy's really obtuse. I don't know what I'm going to do to get his attention. So he, he moves over, and he crushes Balaam's <laughs> Sorry, that's just funny to me crushes his foot up against a wall. I can imagine that. I don't know whether he said bad words, but he probably did. He probably cussed his donkey out. 
And the donkey didn't say anything. But the dumb prophet just kept going. And finally, the angel stands right in the way with that sword the third time. There's nowhere else to go, and the thing says, yeah, this guy is, is so thick up here that twice he hasn't gotten this, and he just, he just collapses. Now Balaam's really angry, and he hits him the third time, and the Lord sees fit to open the donkey's mouth. Isn't that a sad picture? That's what's happening to these folks. I mean, they have gotten themselves in so deep with this thing that they become just like Balaam, willing to leave the right way for the wrong way for the sake of dishonest gain. Remember, we saw this back in verse number three, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That, 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 that's where the, the blinders come off right there. We realize, okay, these people, they aren't what they say they are. They have all these fancy words, but they also have an ulterior motive, and it's dishonest gain. And they're so into this that they're willing to re leave the right path, but the deeper you get down that path, the deeper you are into error, and the deeper you are into error, the less perceptive you are to the truth, the less you see. And, and so it, you know, ultimately it becomes a madness, as I say, and this is why he, I think he uses the illustration. He was rebuked for his own transgression, verse 16, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrain the prophet's madness. That madness. But as I say here, it's the scary truth of judicial blindness. It, folks, truth matters, and there is a price to pay for rejecting truth. I guess it's maybe a different way of illustrating it, but I guess it, it also just sort of stands out in my mind. You know. Over the years of being in the ministry, I wouldn't want to tell you how many funerals I had to conduct. And I would say that funerals are probably one of the lesser lights of the ministry, although they, they definitely afford great opportunities. So I never looked forward to them, but when they came, I embraced them as, as opportunities, opportunities to comfort Christian people, but opportunities to reach lost people. And the Lord allowed me to to bless that take on things, and I saw a number of people trust Christ through those different things. But I was always glad not to be a, fu a funeral director. I'd rather be the preacher who goes there occasionally, and it's not natural to me. It's not the norm. I'm not used to it. Do you know what I'm trying to say? If you're doing that every day, and you have to work with that every day, I would imagine just by self-protection that you develop a certain degree of insensitivity to it. You about have to, right, when you're dealing with that all the time, which makes it all the more dramatic. I was listening recently to someone as a friend was telling me this, that it was actually a widow lady. And uh, my brother and I had gone to visit her, and she was sharing with us that about the service. And my brother had actually uh, been asked, and I was going to go with him, but it so happens it was the day Pastor Cameron was here for his question and answer, and I just, I just said, no, I can't go, I'm sorry. But this man was a minister, and he had been instrumental in our family years and years. I mean, like 40 or more years ago. And he had passed away, so my brother went. He was, a, he was invited to give a testimony at the service, and he was also a, a pallbearer. And 
the, the widow recounted with some, uh, some degree of pride, I think, appropriately, telling us about this, my brother had already told me about it, that the funeral director came up to her afterwards and said, said the obvious, you know, I see this all the time. I see funerals every week, sometimes every day. I've never seen anything like this. So when you, when you get to the point now, assuming this, the comment was sincere, when you get to the point where you've made that kind of an impression on somebody who hears it and sees it all the time, and I often thought, you know, when I gave the word of God at those services and gave the gospel at those services, I often thought, you know, I, I've got my eye on the funeral director as much as I've got it on anybody. Because I figure he hears it from all the apostates all the time. Let him really hear what the gospel is and see if that won't work in his heart. So that's a scary place to be, but that's a law in God's universe. If you reject God's truth, it has a hardening effect. And that's where these people are in a much greater sense than what you and I, but the book of Hebrews, which is, a, which is meant as a book of warning. I didn't give you this verse or didn't put it on the, uh, the PowerPoint, but I'm going to read this particular verse to you. Gives us, from the nation of Israel, an example of this warning. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lures us to believe that we can dabble with it, that a little bit won't hurt. We're playing with fire. All right, let's get to our last thought, which is the free are enslaved. Now, this, this is the pinnacle right here. The, the very people who boasted about their freedom, the very people who whose great selling words, swelling, I'm sorry, they were selling too, but great swelling words, as the King James translates it in uh, one of our verses here, are promoting their way because they're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and promoting that you're free, you know, it doesn't really matter, the body doesn't matter, the spirit is saved, so these Greek these Greek concepts of dualism and all this stuff creeping in and, and a, a complete distortion of what the grace of God is because the grace of God frees us from one thing, from being a slave to one thing to being a slave to another. The grace of God frees us from one thing to something else. It doesn't just free you to just do your own thing. And so... This is kind of the pinnacle, and you find it stated in verse number 19. So look there, they promise them freedom. This was their whole pitch. But they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever, and here's a truism, okay? Almost like a proverb. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's true whether you're a Christian or not. And so this is the final reversal. It's perhaps the most stunning of them all, that these people who were the purveyors of this so-called freedom have themselves become slaves. They become bondage to those very sins that they were reveling in, that they thought were the markers, the demonstrations of just how free they were. As I mentioned, their whole pitch was in distorting liberty into license. That is a distortion, you know. It's not right to take the biblical truth of liberty and distort that into license. Try to keep this in mind whenever you think about these subjects. You can have three words that start with L, which make it easy to... You have liberty, and you have license. 
If you put love in the middle, you'll be okay. Love will keep you from going too far with liberty. Love will remind you what the liberty you have is for. License is a distortion of it. License is self-love. License is indulgence. And where do we find this enticement going on? Notice the word occurs twice. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sins. They entice. It is the same word in the original. They entice unsteady souls. Now that then down in verse number 18, we find it again. For speaking loud boasts, that's where the King James translates, and it's actually a little more spot on. Great swelling words of vanity. Uh, ESV renders for speaking loud boasts of folly. Vanity, folly, empty. In other words, these are empty words, and he's going to illustrate this. Uh, back up in verse 17, he has illustrated it, maybe I should say. We'll get there in a moment. For by great swelling words, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by their sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Well, there's your word error again, because that's all you have left when you leave the right way. But their promises are empty, as I said before, and Peter gives two staggering illustrations of this. Look at verse 17. They're like waterless springs. I mean, can you imagine biblical times where you're traveling in the wilderness and these oases were your lifeblood, literally. I mean, if you didn't know where the water was, you're dead. You're just dead. That's all there is to it. You can't live out there without water. So if you don't know where the water, imagine getting to one and finding it dry. Or in the days of the West, getting to one and finding it poisoned. Or to use an illustration that maybe we're familiar with somewhat, imagine it turning out to be a mirage. Imagine being out in that kind of situation and, and, and almost being mildly delirious. That's an interesting combination of words, mildly delirious. But anyway, imagine having a bit of that problem onsetting because of dehydration, lightheadedness, and all this kind of thing, and looking off in the distance, oh, finally, water. And you put everything you've got all the last energy you've got into moving in that direction only to find out it was a mirage. That's what these religious hucksters do every day. They promise things that are absolutely not true. If they're unbiblical, they're not true. And so then he uses the second illustration where we have Peter using a word here that, that ESV chooses to translate mists. It's very close in resemblance and spelling. So it's not wrong here, but it's just very close in resemblance and spelling to the word clouds, which is actually the one that Jude chooses to use. Uh, now, I didn't give you that verse, but you can look at that verse. Um, verse uh, 13 of Jude, he chooses to use the, words word, use the word clouds. But, uh, verse 13, uh, 12, I'm sorry, it's verse 12. Um, but why is it a mirage? Well, simply for the, this reason. Because lust doesn't satisfy. Maybe you have a, an earlier temporary thrill. But lust doesn't satisfy, it consumes. Water satisfies, which is why when you're really thirsty, that's usually what you ask for. 
because water does satisfy, but lust does not. And this is what he's trying to illustrate. Now, what does he say is going to be the upshot of this? He says, at the end of verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. This is the second time Peter has chosen to use that word gloom. I don't believe we have this word used elsewhere unless Jew uses it. Zaphos is the word. And the translation is good, gloom, because what the word means is the concept of darkness that leads to despair. I mean, if I were a psychiatrist, I I would think you were talking about depression. Because, you know, if you've ever had dealings with that or experienced it yourself, um, depression's an awful thing. Because when you, when you get caught up in that, it's almost like you just are powerless. It's like an overcoming despair or gloom. So that's a, that's a concept that we can kind of get a hold of a little bit. And Peter says that because they abandoned their own profession. See, the way these people were known is described to us in verse number 20 where if they have escaped the defilements, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge. So in other words, these, these people were known as having this knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But then they have again become entangled in these defiling lusts and so forth and overcome. Peter says the last state has become. So they have reneged on their Christianity. And I don't want to keep beating a dead horse, but I gave you the illustration of Josh Harris And I mention this intentionally because I want to say something at the end of this again. So think about how he was known in the earlier days of his ministry. That's what this is talking about. Somebody who was known as being a fervent believer. Somebody who was known as having a heart for purity. Now he turned away from that, denied his Christianity. And Peter says, and I'm not trying to be harsh, folks. I really am not. I'd love to be wrong about Josh Harris, but I don't think I am. But I do know about these people and any who are like them, what Peter says is God has reserved. God has reserved this eternal gloom. Peter doesn't say eternal, but Jude does. And I think I have the verse for you there. Their promises prove as empty as springs. I see that I get ahead of my PowerPoint. The sentence of eternal gloom, Zophos may seem severe, but they have abandoned their own profession and enticed those who are just escaping. You see, there's the verse in Jude. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And Peter says it here at the end of this verse. For them, the gloom of darkness has been reserved. I don't take any delight in saying this, but I'm going to tell you in plain English what that says. These people have a reservation in hell. That's what this says. A horrible fate awaits such people. And Peter reinforces this with two proverbs and one illustration. I said I would come back. There's just time to do this to Jesus' own teaching. So when he says the last state has become for them worse than the first, 
It's really interesting for those that know the original language. It's eschata, last things. Bad news when, you know, as Christians, we think of eschatology. That's, that's the bright hope of Jesus coming back, right? And that's for us a very positive thing, not if you're lost. Last things are not positive at all. Jesus told this story or gave this illustration. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, oh, had it better before. I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, having been swept and garnished or put in order. Those tenses are really interesting. Don't have time to get into it. But the prevailing condition is empty. And it's empty because it's been swept and garnished or put in order. But it's empty. That's the whole point. Just like the clouds are empty. Just like the spring is empty. They're empty. There's nothing really there. No true Christianity ever resided in their hearts. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state, the eschata, the last state, the last things for that person is worse than the first. So will it also be with this evil generation. If that's not enough, he gives two proverbs. He says it's happened just like the dog who returns to its vomit, and the one that's quoted there from the, that's the one that's in Proverbs. The other is just kind of a, a, a proverb in, in common commerce. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You can take the pig out of the slop, but you can't take the slop out of the pig, is essentially what's going on here. They forge their own chains and then find them unbreakable. I want to have time to do something I don't usually do. I don't usually like to read extended things, but I have a quotation here for you. So make this point before I show you the quotation, although it's on your paper. So if Peter seems blunt, and this is what I, I was saying to you about Josh Harris, if Peter seems blunt, Peter seems worked up, you have to remember that like Jude, his heart is pastoral. He calls himself a fellow elder. He's not worried about being an apostle. He is an apostle. He's worried about being a fellow elder. And these people are people that he has a vested interest in. He's ministered to these people. And I'm telling you something, that changes the picture totally. It's one thing when it's academic. It's another thing when you see these blights affecting people you know and love and you've ministered to. You're going to see this come out. This will sort of be the outline that we employ in chapter 3 because there are four references to beloved. That's a term people use pastors use, preachers use, when they want to make that point to their audience. I'm not just preaching at you, is the, the idea. These are people who are beloved. So his warning, I think, is as timely then as it is now. It's just we don't hear a lot of preaching that way today. And here it is. I love the way this writer, Michael Green, has the brief commentary in the Tyndall New Testament commentary series. He ends up his comments on 2 Peter 2 with this. I'm going to make one change at the end. Covetousness, sophistical arguments, pride in knowledge, gluttony, drunkenness, lust, arrogance against authority of all kinds, and most of all, the danger of denying the lordship of the Redeemer. Are not these all paramount temptations of the money-mad, sex-mad, materialistic, anti-authoritarian, 20th, 
about 21st century man. The Bible's right up to date, isn't it? Father, our hearts hang heavy when we see people around like this. It's one thing to have lost people. Our hearts go out to them with great compassion, as Jude exhorts us. Some have compassion. But people who turn their backs on the truth, help us to be passionate for the truth and to understand what that means and how we apply it. And give us the great wisdom to recognize when we apply that to someone who just doesn't understand appropriately and when we have to deal with people who have turned their backs on the truth. As those, our pastor and others in this place, given the responsibility to warn the flock, when they need to do that, may our hearts be open to it. And may we love you. May we love you, the truth more than anything else, and have a heart to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.